you are now ready for a new episode of Minions and Musings. Evil Jeff here. It is OSR Tober. I know there's some people out there doing Octo OSR, but it makes it sound like there's eight arms to the whole thing. Really? Octo eight eight what? Eight OSRs? Well, no. You know, you wonder why it's not gaining traction? I think that's it, guys. I've spoken. OSR Tober. That's the way to really do it. But you know, I'm just being opinionated that way. <laughs> But during the month of OSR-tober, we as podcasters want to celebrate the different things about OSR that make it good. And this go-round, what I'm doing is I'm actually going through a book written back in 1982 uh, through Dungeons Deep, a fantasy gamer's handbook, Robert Plamadon, or Plamadon, whatever, is the author of this book. And it basically is trying to highlight what is a fantasy role-playing game for people that wouldn't know any better. Now, let's remind ourselves, 1982, uh, this is definitely during the time of the Satanic Panic. Uh, We've also had the unfortunate incident of the college student uh, getting lost in the steam tunnels and imagining it this game was real and everything, you know, and the whole hoax behind that that was just, you know, made just too much of, really. So, I believe this book was written sort of to defend role-playing and to, in a moderately, um, I don't want to say academic way, but, you know, you could sort of see that in here, present what is a role-playing game, and then also talk to potential role-players about the style of game prevalent at that time. And I want to, and that's what really got me interested in here, because I was like, you know, in 1982, you know, this is where we've had game, you know, role-playing games, D and D has been out since '74, so we're talking eight years here, and a lot of other games have come out during that time frame. Advanced Dungeons Dragons, uh, BX has come out, but you also have Tunnels and Trolls, Arduin, you know, a whole host of others, and you know, we want to really kind of capture what that is, and I wanted to look at this book. And say, okay, is this a good book for somebody to read to get an idea of what the OSR style of play is? Also, is this a book that, upon reading it, may give people the wrong idea or maybe turn them off from the style of play that we have? Or just role playing in general? So, two sides that I was looking at in here. So let's go ahead and dive into this. Can we just can we talk about the silly string? Quick little info on the book: you're totaling 323 pages overall. 
And in that we have three parts is how it's broken up. Uh, 23 chapters overall and then uh, three appendices in there along with an index. The first part is how to play. And he starts off by going into what is a fantasy role-playing game um, and really trying to present role-playing in a good light. Um, but you still, if you read in here, you'll see where he pokes at that satanic panic and pokes at the whole thing with the uh, mazes and monsters thing, that horrible event or that horrible movie about the unfortunate event that occurred there. And the nice thing about it is that he says why, in his opinion, the games are popular, but what role-playing games are not. And that really is, is the key to it. And he, he throws some shade back there. You know, um, I love the line right there on page eight, you know, talking about the satanic panic people, you know, the ones who proclaim that role-playing games show satanic influences are as credible as anyone else who uses the favorite lines of the Ayatollah Khomeini. Wow. <laughs> I mean, for somebody who remembers the whole Iran hostage situation back then and how that was just kind of mangled by Jimmy Carter and the administration. Really more more Jimmy Carter's administration than him, I believe. But just how that was just done and, and the rhetoric that was coming out during that time as well. I mean, that, that really kind of was a nice shot at people that were obviously didn't know any better. Nowadays, that would be pretty much, what, probably 90% of Twitter? Or X, or whatever you want to call it. Chapter 2 gets you into um, really kind of showing us what the OSR is like. The play style. And on page 13, it goes through this narration of events. Uh, something that you would probably imagine a GM and three players how they would interact with a situation. The three players, their characters are coming back from a trip to the dungeon and the GM presents them with uh, three bandits who step out trying to rob them and the interaction that goes along and talking about rolling. The nice thing about this example, if we let people read it, this you don't see any of the, the newer conventions of things. The, uh, can I roll perception? No, we don't have that. It's all describing. And the GM is basically the ones rolling pretty much all the dice. If there had been a... combat, then I guess the players would have played there. But all the dice here are rolled by the GM. In a way, hearkening very much back to how we understand uh, Anderson playing his games. You know, you tell me what you're doing. Let me roll a couple dice. I interpret that. Yeah, hey, let's move on. Oh, let me 
describe what happens, and we move on from there. So it's a really great representation. So if I was going to say, hey, you know, this is what, this is how you would want to play, I'd actually let them read this whole sequence of play, this first chapter, this, well, actually the second chapter of the book. And that's all I've got to do. In fact, they don't even need to read the whole part of it. The whole of it, excuse me. They go through most of it, and I think it would be covered. Another interesting thing, as it does bring up, at the very end of the chapter, Solitary Adventures, and points out that High Fantasy, Tunnels and Trolls, and the Fantasy Trip were, to his knowledge, the only role-playing games to have solo adventures. It was going to be several years before TSR came up with some solo adventures. I believe one of the first ones being for uh, Beckme at that point. And starting in 1983, we would have the very first sort of solo adventure from TSR in the first uh, basic D&D rulebook that Metzner had edited. Chapter 3 talks about creating characters. And this is another section that I think I would... For people that have been playing for a little bit of time, you know, maybe some 5e people or playing some other stuff, but the real gist of this one is in when in creating characters, there's a section talking about establishing a personality. And in that personality, we're... You know, he's trying to encourage that you understand what is this character you're creating? What is the motivation back behind them? And by doing that, I think we get a much richer character experience. You know, a lot of what is seen nowadays, in my opinion, we would only see a you know, examples of this. You'd have to play with the people. This is not taught in the other rule sets as far as I'm aware, having read just a few of the newer rule sets. And with the idea of a lot of these rule sets kind of stripping down and so forth uh, as much as they can just to kind of be a set of rules, it doesn't really talk about creating character and how to inhabit the character. So the only way new role players would see it is by more veteran players exhibiting that behavior. As we get into chapter four, this is where I first encountered information that I thought could be problematic for a new player or trying to promote the OSR in that way. Now, Today, reading this book, I think it could be problematic. At the time, uh, chapter 4 being about outfitting your character, he starts off talking about armor and weapons and describing them. And in 1982, I can understand wanting to do that because we didn't have the internet. You know, you basically had to go to the library you had to use your encyclopedias there, or maybe you had encyclopedias at your home, if you were lucky, me. And you would look this information up. And would you actually have all this information? Well, I don't know. You might. 
But it goes into different types of armor. You know, hey, we got chain mail, ring mail, brigandine, lorica, segmenta, oh, segmentata. You know, a lot of historical items in there talking about, you know, the different types of weapons and so forth. And I think this is it's good, but it could potentially turn somebody off on the OSR. Now, a brand new player who has never really thought about it, and to me, I'm starting to think uh, the games game club that Che Webster runs uh, over at his school, uh, Che Webster Roleplay Rescue, you know, this could be, you know, good information for uh, the youth there to read and, and get a better idea of what they really are. While they might know some of it, some additional information wouldn't be such a, a bad idea. goes through other equipment, and I think that, to me, was also the good OSR part of it. You know, hey, let's talk about what else you need to outfit a character. I mean, you need food, but then... It gets into camping gear and pack mules or horses and treasure containers. And and all of a sudden, I'm starting to think, you know, you, you go into that and almost you could, I could see a new player or a new person start to think, oh man, that's a lot of minutia and I got to keep up with all that. In 1982, to me, that would be, hey, we're really simulating going out on an extended period of time, you know, for extended period of time into the wilds, and we need these items. Nowadays, I would expect people to not be as patient and start feeling like it's being a lot of minutia. One other little note in here at the end of chapter four talks about light sources, which we need. But here... He talks about using magical light, you know, a light spell or continual light spell. And in this case, continual light spell that was cast in a lamp that could be shuttered. And to me, this gets to be a little bit dangerous because GMs or DMs, whichever way we want to call it, in the book he does call them GMs. That would be the ruling of a GM how that would work. Because I have seen some of these referees that would go through and say, oh yeah, you could cast that in, in the lantern and then you close it up and it wouldn't glow. And other ones that go, nah friend, you read the description of the, of the spell, you've got this area of light that glows in a 10 foot radius, 30 foot radius, however big it is depending upon your rule set. And it glows. And it can be cast on something and moved around. But the whole area glows. You know. And it becomes subject of interpretation of the spell. And I think there's a little bit of problematic stuff right there with it. But it's it's good because all of a sudden now we gave a hint to new players of, hey, think outside the box. The answer is not always... Right there in your character sheet. You don't always have to roll for something. In chapter 5, you get into uh, bases and exploration. I thought it was a great idea to 
um, read through this and talk about you know what happens when you're traveling if you're making camp and the way he describes it was nice because it, it would it was a lot of common sense or presenting it as a common sense item if you read it you were didn't feel like you're being talked down to it's more like a hey you know if you think about it this way you know when you are heading out to explore a dungeon side trips while they are nice are potentially dangerous because they could rob you of resources you know in fact they even tells you side trips should be avoided going in but on the way back out yeah go ahead do those little side trips except for the part where he gets to talk about the return trip and he's more like yeah once you get your stuff from the dungeon and everything you really need to hurry back to base don't veer off to the left or right get back you know so um did you did you mess something up there are you just saying maybe we should just note the little side quest and then you know let's make those an adventure on their own uh, okay, you messed up, messed me up a little bit on that one. Chapter 6 talks about exploring dungeons and ruins. And here, to me, I, I started looking at it and reading it and going, we're starting to get into some minutia here, which could turn off potential new players. Uh, case in point, talks about equipment in there and a toolkit now maybe this was in a rule set that he had or maybe it was just something that was generated on the fly by one of his gms and everything but you know his toolkit and talks about you gotta have these things you know every adventure should carry a file a pair of pliers a small saw a hammer a chisel and a hand axe you know this will allow him to get past most mechanical obstacles. Huh. And when I read that, I'm sitting here thinking, as a new player, if I didn't have that, would a GM use that against me? Ah, uh, you don't really have a, a file to really kind of, you know, sand, you know, to kind of take the edge off that thing. Or to be able to hack, get through some metal, metal bar or something. Huh. Okay, well, there is that. Another example was this idea of a rope and winch. And it was talking about how to get, you know, through um, some sort of portcullis or even a door. And if you read this part of the rope and winch, um... And the, the big thing is that, to me, the winch, a ratcheting winch, kind of like what I would use if I was strapping stuff down in a truck, right? Hook on two ends of this rope and using a ratcheting winch to tighten it, the rope down to lock it into place. Here I'm going to start saying you have to know what level of technology is available in your world. To me, a ratcheting winch is definitely going to be a late medieval period thing. Early medieval stuff, 
I'm not going to see that. You know, but the amount of spikes and hooks and all sorts of things, you know, this was one of those times where I think he encountered a game master who was very um, antagonistic, adversarial, and they came up with a way to get around him. Or this was the method they had to figure out to deal with this guy, how he would present things. To me, that could leave us with a little bit of a negative feeling. Chapter 7 goes into Creatures in Combat, and this is another section I think that uh, new players should read. Not only for just OSR-type games, but all sorts of games. You know, how to deal with monsters. You know, is it always something that you need to fight? Are there other options in there? You know, and go through several different scenarios of how to deal with the encounters with these monsters. Whether they are wandering monsters, a chance encounter, or something that's in a room. You know, very good advice in there. Very OSR, in my opinion. Lesson, uh, not lesson, sorry. Chapter 8 gets into treasure. And while it's nice and everything, I've got a bone to pick with the author at this point. You know, talks about opening containers and so forth. And on page 87 goes into this piece about opening chests. I'm going to read this thing. Just, just Okay, so this is what he says. Wooden treasure chests can be opened fairly safely by the following method. First, throw a lasso around the chest, standing as far away as possible. Next, drag the chest into another room. This will trigger any spear traps, ten-ton block traps, or pit traps. But the character should be far enough away that that, it doesn't matter. Next, the chest should be tipped onto one side. This makes any forward-firing traps fire at the floor. After that, the bottom boards are broken out with an axe or a crowbar, thus gaining access to the inside wall, foiling traps that are triggered by playing with the lock or opening the lid. Coins are scooped out with a trowel, avoiding contact poison. Other items are picked up with tongs. Sealed glass containers may be filled with poisonous gas, so be careful. All treasures should be put in heavy containers, such as chests or heavy canvas bags. Coins should be treated with fire to burn off contact poison after the party gets home. Do this in a very well-ventilated area. The level of absurdity that that paragraph is to me is just it's crazy. If you come, if my character comes across a chest, am I going to think it's trapped? Well, it depends upon where I find the stupid thing. You know, if there's this room, and there's a chest at the end, and there's nothing else in that room, okay, that 
to me, is probably a trap. And there's probably nothing worthwhile in that chest. Now, if this room, and the only thing in it is a chest, if this room was hidden off of a main room, okay, now it's a secret room, and it's more likely that we are trying to protect something. The chest is protecting the treasure. It's containing the treasure, and we may trap it to go through and protect it from potential thieves, but we also have to have ways of not letting it injure ourselves if I was the one that was putting stuff in there. I'm sorry. If I come across a treasure chest, and I think, you know, and this is in an area that may be the treasury or is, you know, it's not in some wide open area. It's off to one side and so forth. Who in the world put contact poison on their own money? Really? I mean, I might have to spend this money later on. I've got to go through the process of treating it. it to me, that was, the absurdity that shows tells me that our writer here faced an adversarial GM who was a butt who had killed more than one person by putting this chest sitting out there in the open and daring him to try to get the stuff out of it. And this is the way that he went about it. Or his group eventually came around it. I mean, to me, it was stupid. I think the ultimate way of fixing that, if I had players that were doing that, is that chest would be a mimic, and the moment they started to break it open, it took them out. Or maybe I'll make the room a mimic. I don't know. It just... It was just absurd in there. There's no way that if there is true treasure in a chest that the owner of that treasure is going to put contact poison on it. Because they might want to use it later. They might need to use it later. It just is absurd. I'm sorry. There's a rant there. But yeah, it is what it is. The good thing was that it does talk about um, how to take it with you, you know, how you, you got to go about transporting the goods and so forth. It also points out that treasure is not always coins and gems. Sometimes it's statues. Sometimes it's tapestries. It might be other things that have value. And getting it out of the dungeon or getting it out of this castle or wherever it is and you've got to tote it back through the wilderness, well, if it gets messed up along the way, you just lost a whole bunch of money in there. So, you know, you kind of have to be careful there. I, I can see that. He does go through talking about how to divide up the treasure, and in the early days where your money was uh, your XP, there's a, you know, this is a good section for that. For modern players, modern D&D games, that really doesn't matter too much. And the last section, or last two sections, um, not sections, excuse me, chapters, uh, magic, goes through, nice little bit about magic in there. Eh, you know, nothing really big and fancy in there. But uh, chapter 10 does talk about wealth and power. And the thing in here is that we 
get to see the advantages of having henchmen and hirelings. You know, and points out that these are the people that are protecting your horses when you make camp to go into the dungeon. You know, because, you know, if we didn't have these horses or anything, you know, we had these horses but nobody watching them, well, when you went to the dungeon, who's watching them? How, are you going to just leave them out there? How long are you going to be out there? You know, who's to say that some group of bandits isn't going to come by and steal them? Or some monsters go, oh, look, there's a snack. So it was good to see that. And it is mentioned not only in chapter 10, but uh, other chapters as well. All right, well, that gets us through part one of the book. Part two is game mastering, and that will be the next show. So thank you for listening to my <laughs> rant there at the end. Uh, so far, I can say this is a more positive book for OSR style play and uh, understanding the way the game was first played. But... I'm going to reserve judgment until I get through at least part two about the Game Master. I want to see what's being said there. Now granted, part three is more or less the, the world itself, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the complete campaign. And hopefully it has some good information in there. I suspect that we're going to have a slight distillation along the way of stuff that Gary talked about in the DMG. Probably one of the best places for any game master to read about how to build a campaign. Besides some of the modern stuff that's coming out. But it should be good. Alright, well, tune in next week. And when I get through the second part of through Dungeons Deep. Appreciate you listening. Be safe out there. And have a good game. Witchcraft!